Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Conrad, to, to be really truthful about it, I'm I'm lucky to even be here this morning. This could have been, actually, last week could have been the very last podcast for 83 weeks. I almost died this morning. What happened? What? It was, I got up early, you know, knowing that we we're going to do the show and, and I like to get up super early in the morning and I like to look at the pay-per-view we're going to cover, you know, about an hour or two before we do the show, because that way it's all fresh in my mind and I can make some notes and stuff. So I got up early. Now, Mrs. B is down in Florida. She's visiting Garrett and his wife, uh, Mary Jane. So she's, I'm, I'm flying solo. I'm, I've been home alone now for about a week. So anyway, I get up this morning making my coffee, I'm prepping, getting ready to do my 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 review of this pay-per-view, and my dog Nikki is going batshit crazy. I mean, nuts. She obviously sees something outside that's got her completely fired up. And now normally I wouldn't just let her out because that usually tells me there's, you know, who knows what kind of critters are running around here. We got a lot of animals around here from moose to grizzly bear to whatever. So I look around the property and I don't see anything. So I thought, okay, I'm going to let her out because otherwise she's going to be all just cranked up all morning long and she'll, you know, drive me nuts while I'm trying to do the podcast with you. So I let her out the door. Keep in mind, I'm in my pajamas. Well, I call them pajamas, but there's just a pair of old sweatpants and a tank top, right? And I haven't even had my first cup of coffee yet. And she goes blowing out the back of the house. I run around. And you don't, you can't imagine what my property looks like, but I'm you know, pretty much out in the middle of nowhere and it, it's very hilly and mountainous and all that. I see her ass in go down over a hill and she's blazing. She's, she must be doing 60 miles an hour. So she's clearly after something and really vocal about it. Now I'm starting to get a little concerned. She doesn't usually act that way. She's chasing deer, antelope, things like that. She just does that for fun, but she's like really going after whatever it was. So here's where it gets silly. I go sprinting across the back 40. Now my back 40 is not something you want to go sprint across. It's, you know, deep ravines and ditches and steep, you know, hills and all that kind of stuff. I'm out there sprinting now, chasing my dog. Cause I can't, I'm, I just can't imagine, you know, she's my dog. I love my dog to death. You know, I'm not going to just let her run off and hope she comes back. So I see her SM go over this ridge. And I thought, oh God, I gotta go catch her. So now I'm sprinting and I'm about a quarter of a mile, a third of a mile into this sprint across this cross country terrain. And I'm starting to blow up, like really blow up. I mean, I never thought I was in shape, but I didn't realize how bad of shape I was in. So I'm, I'm really gassing hard now. And I, and I look up and here's my dog. I see my dog and she's chasing a freaking mountain lion. Oh, a mountain lion. Now I'm thinking, what am I going to do if I catch her? <laughs> she's got a mountain lion. I didn't bring a gun. Thank God I didn't bring a gun. There's a good chance I would have fallen and maybe blown a leg off or worse. But I'm breathing so hard, I can hardly focus my eyes. I was actually losing my vision. And I thought, my God, I'm going to have a heart attack out here. There's good, the headlines, Bischoff, you know, 64 years old, dies of a heart attack chasing his dog that was chasing a mountain lion. And the worst part is, 
where I was on my property in these ravines, nobody would have found me. It would have, if somebody would have said, wait a minute, what are all those vultures doing circling over that, that ravine? That's crazy. And maybe somebody a week or two you know, from now would have come looking for me. But I'm li these thoughts are going through my head. And then she disappears again. Her and the mountain lion are gone. Now I can't see it. Now they're out of my sight. So I think, okay, I got to get back to the house, jump in my truck and head, you know, go all the way around. It's too hard to describe, but I, I thought I I'd take a different angle, but I had to get back to my truck to do it. Now I got to sprint all the way back to my house, another quarter or third of a mile. By the time I get home, I really did. I thought I was going to just keel over and die. And just as I... I'm, you know, I'm coming up close enough to the house where I, I can see my deck and I'm thinking, okay, if I could just make it to the deck, I just got to make it to the deck and I might survive this. My dog comes running around the house, tongue hanging out, tail wagging, hey, this was fun. Let's go do this again. <laughs> it took me 45 minutes before I could sit still enough because I was breathing so heavy and hacking and gagging and, my, and lightheaded. I thought, God, when Conrad calls me to do this podcast, I'm going to have to beg off for an hour because I don't know if I'm going to be ready. But fortunately, fortunately, I'm here. I'm healthy. I am going to the gym later on this afternoon. <laughs> Enough of this nonsense. But yeah, that's how my morning started. Well, I'm glad you're still with us, and I'm glad that we get to cover Slamboree 1999. But before we do, we should circle back to last week. What was the feedback that you got from last week's episode? A lot of good feedback. You know, the feedback has been really positive lately, and I, I don't know if it's because, you know, he, the chemistry between you and I has evolved. I think that's part of it. I think uh, on my end, I think I approach these things quite differently, and I analyze them a little bit differently than perhaps I did when we first started. But it just seems like I didn't get as much feedback as we got on the North Korea episode, um, obviously. But uh, the, the feedback I am getting is, is positive. How about you? Yeah, good feedback. I think everybody loves 1997. Uh, and now, unfortunately, we have to take a, a turn for the worse. Slamboree 1999. Uh, we just passed the 20-year anniversary for this show. It went down May 9th at the TWA Dome in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, at this point in the Monday night wars, the ratings have turned and now the WWF is in the driver's seat. And the day after this pay-per-view nitro is even preempted and raw does its biggest rating in history. Uh, I assume that the, uh, nitro show was preempted for basketball when, when nitro comes back on the air on May 17th. They lose the night to raw raw does a 6.4 nitro just does a 3.8. Now 3.8 would be a huge number today for raw. Uh, but you guys were probably fairly disappointed heading into this with, uh, the WWF in control. And me, you've talked about this for the, I don't know, duration of 83 weeks. Now 99 is, uh, not a fun time in Eric Bischoff's life. Fair to say. It's an understatement, you know, and I, Going back and looking at this, this pay-per-view, you know, it brings back a lot of memories because as I've said a million times, I don't live in the past. I don't think about the past, either, you know, the great stuff or the horrible stuff. I just, I just don't do it. My wife has conditioned me well. It's taught me well. Um, but when, you know, I can't help it when I go back and I see in the particular, this pay-per-view, it just brings back such, such a rush of, 
of memories, good and bad in this case. And, you know, the bad, unfortunately, outweighed the good. But the overall, you know, from a, from, you know, a high altitude perspective, 33,000 feet looking down, this was probably, if not the worst time in my professional life. No, it, it was. It was indeed, by this point in May of 1999, it was the worst point in my professional life. I was miserable. It's uh, it's apparent when you watch this show that the best days of WCW are behind it. And it's weird because it happened kind of fast. You know, we, we've talked about the finger poke of doom that happened in January of this year. And here we are just a handful of months later in early May. And it feels like now the momentum has, has surely shifted. There was still a lot of optimism and hope coming out of the finger poke of doom. And we've talked about the fact that some people point to that show, the finger poke of doom and say that was the beginning of the end, but you can definitely see the business is in a decline here for WCW by Slamboree 99. Is that fair to say? Sure. I mean, it's obvious and, and I'm, I'm anxious to talk about, you know, some of, not all of, but some of the reasons why that is. And going back and watching the show this morning, this pay-per-view, um, it, it became glaringly apparent you know, to me where, where WCW was and why we were in a part of the reason, not all of the reason, but a good portion of the reason that we were in the position we were in. And we'll, we'll talk about it as we go through the show, but um, yeah, it was, it was a horrible time for WCW and it had it all started about a year earlier, you know, it, it, to, to the viewer. And I understand, you know, why people will look at, Oh, you know, the finger poker doom is what, you know, caused it all. And I mean, I understand why they think that way because they don't have all of the information and it's easy to make those assumptions based on the only thing that you see or the only thing that you know about. But the, the real, the real pressure and in my opinion, and I think in the opinion of perhaps Guy Evans and people who really did the research and thoroughly understand or understand as much as anybody can what was going on in in Turner Broadcasting at the time, Time Warner AOL. A lot of what we're seeing on this pay-per-view was the result of decisions, decisions and choices that were made a year or in some cases 18 months earlier. But here on this pay-per-view, it becomes very evident to me because, again, I'm going back. I'm seeing it for the first time in 20 years. And and especially when you, you, you we, we cover a pay-per-view like we did, you know, last week, you know, Spring Stampede 97 or, or was it Slambury 97? And then you fast forward to 99 and the, the, the difference is a glaring, but in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And you're having to put on a brave face. Um Wade Keller would report Bischoff in a speech to front office workers a few weeks back reportedly predicted that nitro would jump to a 7.0 rating when they upgraded the set of nitro and changed the format. Instead, there was no jump in the rating. It was actually the same as the week before and thrashed by raw again. We're going to take a break from you Meltzer bashing and we're going to do a little Wade Keller bashing this week. Uh, this has been written about you a lot that you really felt like uh, what was hurting the ratings is that it was the same old look and, and maybe nitro needed a fresh coat of paint. And there is some wisdom to that. And I think, you know, uh, there's a reason that television sets and late night shows and football pregame shows, et cetera, et cetera, sort of refresh the look. Um, 
But did you really believe the rumor and innuendo reported that, Hey, this is going to cause us to double our ratings. I think you know me well enough. And although you didn't know me back then, um, I don't believe I ever said that. And I'm not going to call Wade a liar because Wade, Wade typically, look, I've had my, my rounds, you know, with Wade, but Wade typically didn't just make stuff up, nor did he often, although he did from time to time, because I think he was trying to be competitive, you know, with, with Meltzer, um, did do a lot of speculation that was cloaked as fact, uh, or reporting, you know, rumors from unnamed sources as fact. So I did, I have in the past called him out, but for the most part, Wade was called as straight as he could, given the business he was in. That being said, never in my career did I ever believe that a set or lighting or any, any production value you want to name is going to single-handedly, you know, change the fortunes of a television property. I mean, it's just that, that if I said it, I didn't believe it. And I was trying to motivate the people around me, but I don't think I said it. It just makes no sense. You know, and, and you do have to have a great look. You, you, especially when people are comparing you to WWF at that time, because the WWF WWE has always since as far back as I can remember, been the gold standard when it comes to production value. So obviously people are going to compare you consciously or subconsciously. Sometimes people don't even know why they, they like the look and feel of one you know property over another, but there's no way in the world changing a set is going to double the audience. People don't turn tune into any television show for the production values. They tune in it for the storylines, for the characters, for the action, um, for the ability to kind of forget everything else that's going on in their lives and kind of get sucked into the drama of the two or three hours they're watching. But that, you know, the set is like, it's like he's saying, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to choose this restaurant over that one because the garnish on the plate is better over there. It's just, I don't think I said it. I'm not going to call Wade a liar. It's possible in the state of mind that I was, I was in, I might've been fighting, you know, I'll, I'll speculate here because I don't remember ever saying it, but if I did, um, I might have been putting pressure on Turner Broadcasting or trying to rally the troops to help me put pressure on Turner to get some of my budget back because they had gutted our budget in, in, in preparation for the AOL Time Warner merger and trying to reach that magical 18 or 20 percent EBITDA. Um, they had slashed a budget that had been approved 12 months earlier. Or in this case, probably six months earlier, eight months earlier. Right. So there were there was a lot going on, but you know, just to answer the question, I I don't think I said it. If if somebody wants to step up and say they heard me say it, then I'll acquiesce and you know eat it. But I don't think I did. Well, the ratings is is definitely the talk of the business today, and it was back then, and it makes sense that you would you know, try to have a speech addressing the ratings because on our go home episode of nitro, as we build to this pay-per-view nitro does a 3.1 and raw does a 6.4. And in fact, the seventh quarter hour of the show raw had more than three times the audience that nitro had raw did a 7.3 quarter hour. Nitro did a 2.4. 
so the tide has turned here and, um, Wade Keller also had a theory given to him by some of the boys. One of the reasons wrestlers feel nitro is suffering is due to mid card talent working extended house show tours up to 29 out of 30 days. Every other week, nitro winds up being the final day of those tours. The wrestlers are either rushing to get through their matches or are so weary and beaten up from the road. They feel like their nitro matches are suffering and it's gotten so bad that most wrestlers leave immediately after their matches and producers of the show have a hard time finding talent to fill the backstage blast segments. Two things I want to address there. First, tell everybody the concept behind backstage blast and explain what it is to some of our listeners who may not know. Hell, I don't remember. What is it? What so, was it? Uh, you guys did a, a deal on direct TV where you could pay a little a bit extra. And when nitro went to commercial, uh, you could flip over to this channel on direct TV and they would give you lots of backstage segments. Yeah, that sounds like yeah. That was probably a Mike Weber thing, and Mike could Mike could probably talk to that much more than I could. I wasn't really involved in it clearly, um, but yeah, you just described it. It is what it was. But that would have been Mike Weber, possibly Sharon Sadella working together on that. Let's talk about the theory that Nitro being at the end of the tour actually hurts their performance. And I do want to mention that they're still doing that today. So if you work on the SmackDown house shows. Uh, you're going to go do a SmackDown house show on Saturday. Then you're going to do one on Sunday. Then you'll do one on Monday and then you'll do SmackDown on Tuesday. And then you go home. If you're on raw, you're going to work a, a house show on Friday, another on Saturday, another on Sunday. Then you're going to go do raw and then you're going to go home unless, you know, since they've decided that the brand split really doesn't fucking matter, even though we make a big deal out of it every year, then you're just going to work both shows and then you go home. Uh, chat me up here. Had you heard this theory that, Hey, we should start the tour with the shows on nitro. And, and I guess by their recollection, they would work house shows during the week and then take the weekend off. I mean, that wouldn't have worked, right? No. And th there's, there's truth to that reporting on Wade's uh, side. Here's, and, and again, I'm going to, uh, I'm going to be tr try to be judicious in how often I refer back to the AOL time Warner merger and rebudgeting after budgets had been approved. But it's hard to not talk about those things because it was it had such a dramatic impact on so many different levels. One of the things, and it was a and it was a combination of things. First of all, there was Thunder. We've touched on this in previous shows, but when Ted Turner mandated Thunder, he he left it up to everybody else to come up for come up with a way to pay for it. It was a very expensive show to produce. It was a live show. It was on the road. We had to. You know, bring in more talent, all the things we've talked about before. And typically, TBS would pay for that show, right? The, the, the network that was carrying it would, would offset the production, uh, at least the expense of it. Not that they would pay us a license fee with a margin built in, so there was profit built in for it. But the idea should have been that TBS, who is going to be getting the show and presumably the advertising that went along with it should have stepped up to offset the cost of production. So it didn't come out of WCW's budget. That's not what happened because in the middle of the AOL time Warner rebudgeting. And again, I'm going to say this so people are sick of probably of hearing it, but every, and it wasn't just WCW that was affected by this. Every, every division of Turner broadcasting was affected by this strategy to try to increase the valuation of Turner Broadcasting at the time of you know, closing the merger. 
because the more the more valuation that Turner could show um, across their different divisions, you know, the people that were operating those divisions, whether it was me and WCW or Brad Siegel and TNT or whoever, you know, Harvey Schiller and Turner Sports, everybody was <clears throat> in line to make a massive amount of money on their stock options because the stock options became vested, meaning they matured at the time of um, the merger. Typically, when you get stock options, they vest over a long period of time. They're, they're, they're an incentive to keep top executives to stick around for 10 or 15 or 20 years to build up their retirement package. But in the case of a merger, when one company takes over another company, those stock options typically vest the day of. And everybody knew that. So everybody was jockeying money around within the company. And I'm not going to suggest, I'm not suggesting that any of this was uh, illegal or unethical at the time. It was considered a generally accepted accounting principle. Um, and it was legal, but it was highly suspect because there were losses being shifted from one division to another division or profits that people would you know anticipate would come you know next quarter that they figured out a way to account for in the previous quarter all of these machinations with regard to finance were going on because everybody was incentivized to do it and in WCW's case again now we're you know we we went from being the you know redheaded stepchild no no no, no, no disrespect to redheads out there. Please don't send me hateful tweets. But we went from being the redheaded stepchild to all of a sudden we're the we're the golden child of Turner Broadcasting. Ted Turner's calling me every Tuesday afternoon at four thirty to congratulate me. Right, everything we touch is working, and and people are actually proud of WCW. Now we're back to being the redheaded stepchildren again, and. Where Ted Turner said, Eric, go produce Thunder. Bill Burke says, Eric, I'm not paying for it. It's not coming out of my budget. You figure it out. Well, how did I figure it out? We, we, we tried to increase our revenues in order to offset the expense that we were forced to eat. Ted wanted it. Nobody else wanted to pay for it. I had no choice but to do it. We had to pay for it. So what did we do? You know, we, we couldn't we couldn't increase any more pay-per-views. You know, I couldn't add another month to the calendar year. We weren't going to do two pay-per-views in one month. That didn't make sense to me at the time. We were having a difficult, difficult enough time delivering decent pay-per-views, you know, once a month. The only thing we could do is increase house shows to increase revenues to help offset the cost of Thunder. And that's, that's where the truth in, in Wade's reporting came in. We didn't want to do that. I didn't want to do that. A lot of our top guys had limits in their contracts that kept them out of, you know, the kind of schedule that unfortunately some other guys had. And those people that didn't have limits in their agreements or had much, you know, more dates that they owed us in their agreements, they worked their guts out. Now, I think, how does that affect the end product? You know, how does it affect what we see on Nitro or what we saw on a pay-per-view? I think the grind, it obviously affects the talent. And so often, especially in WCW, again, we've touched on this before, finishes, the way matches were laid out were subpar for the level of competition we were trying to achieve. Very, very subpar 
I might add. WCW never had a history. Before I got there, while I was there, you know, as an announcer, while I was there running the company and subsequent to me leaving, WCW never, ever was known for great finishes. Occasionally, there'd be a match or two that would stand out over the course of the year. But I think if you look at, you know, some of the, the reporting from, you know, who, who's ever dirt sheet you wanted to, you know, believe in, you know, I think the one consistent thing, and I would agree with it, is our finishes sucked. Especially now as I go back and I look at it, because again, I look at these things so much differently now than I, than I did when I was doing them or probably even 10 years ago. I, I just look at it differently now. And one of the things that happened along to the talent just being physically beat because of that schedule that Wade referred to uh, and you asked me about, the agents were also on the receiving end of that. And I think people were just mentally and physically shot. And we didn't have a deep, you know, we didn't have a deep bench anyway when it came to agents and people that had great experience or even decent experience in laying out finishes. So oftentimes it was the talent themselves that were doing it. And <clears throat> it shows, you know, it shows on this pay-per-view. Well, I'm not going to beat it to death, but I'm going to point it out. You know, you look at this particular pay-per-view, if there's 10 matches uh, on this pay-per-view, eight of them had run-ins and kind of clusterfuck finishes that made absolutely no sense and actually took away from the match there's, with one exception. There's only one exception I, I saw in, in, in this pay-per-view where the finish and the match were really, really exceptional. The rest of them were just basically recycled shit that we'd probably seen 50 times in the, you know, the weeks leading up to this. So many of the times the finishes were almost the same from one match to another. A little variation here or there. But that that's the kind of thing that happens when, A, you, you don't have the bench strength and, and the logistical support that you need. It happens when people just get burned out because you're overworking them. And, and you're abu not abusing them intentionally, but the, the end result is the same. They're being abused. Uh, and they just run out of gas creatively, physically, and, and emotionally. You know, their heart is just no longer in it. And I think it was really, this, this pay-per-view in this period of time is really reflective of that. Uh, so I guess we should talk about the guys who were sort of fighting for their jobs here in WCW Wade Keller would write the WCW drug test two weeks ago, two weeks ago, were not initiated by Eric Bischoff, but instead by time Warner higher ups, apparently concerned with the ESPN piece. Uh, most wrestlers are viewing the tests as a formality and insiders are saying the tests were done by management as a public relations ploy. Huh? Others fear it is a leverage tactic used by WCW as a way to hold the test over the heads of wrestlers who may be causing problems or may be thinking about leaving the company. And it is felt that only under those two circumstances would the tests ever come back to haunt the wrestlers involved, similar to the way the WWF pulled out a test on Scott Hall before he jumped to WCW or Tully Blanchard prior to his leaving the company in hopes of returning to WCW. So lots of people are being critical about the decision to reinstate drug testing. But to me, I mean, this is a little bit of sour grapes. How about don't do drugs and you won't fail the test. Yeah. Well, let's, let's break that <clears throat> bit of reporting down just a little bit and clarify a few things. And this is all 
anybody that really wanted to do the research and be accurate about their reporting would have been able to figure this out pretty clearly and, and should have been able to actually. Um, Eric Bischoff never once, ever once initiated a drug test because that effort reported directly to legal because it was an intensely legal situation. Meaning that if someone failed that drug test, it automatically triggered clauses in, in their agreement. So for two reasons, number one, I didn't administer the drug testing program because as I said just now, that, that effort reported directly to legal and legal did not report to me. Legal reported to Turner Broadcasting Legal, not to Eric Bischoff. Even though we were in the same office, it was a dotted line relationship, not a direct report relationship. Need to make that really clear. And that's the way it was from day one when I was president of the company. I don't know what, what it was like prior to that. I, I wasn't involved in it. But when I was president, that's how it worked. Now, Harvey Schiller, who was the head of Turner Sports, hired – um, and I don't remember his name, but the individual that Harvey Schiller hired to administer our drug tests was previously the head of drug testing for the U.S. Olympic Committee. So it wasn't like we were working with some, you know, gas station doctor who, you know, saw patients in the back of a van <laughs> And, and and administer drug tests, you know, that everybody knew were incomplete or, or, or a joke. Harvey Schiller, because of his position in Turner Sports, number one, because he, he was a colonel in the Air Force. He was a military guy. He was a straight down the middle type of person. Um, he didn't get creative as an executive. He hired a guy that he thought was the best in, in the world who was available to administer WCW's drug tests. And he and Diana Myers and or Nick Lambros would have been the ones to decide when and where and who, not Eric Bischoff. And that was the way it was from day one. So Wade's reporting, which would indicate or lead readers to believe that I had to dis the discretion or the responsibility to trigger a drug test, is just flat out wrong. And Wade should have known better. That's number one. Number two, uh, your point of, well, we're really doing this because we want, you know, to hang, hang this drug test over like, you know, the Macaulay sword. And, you know, we need to pull it out and cut their heads off with it for PR reasons or you know, keep people from jumping or make them, you know, nervous, whatever. It's just so much nonsense. It, it really is. And if you think about it, you know, is, is the legal division of Turner Broadcasting going to engage in that kind of no, I mean, that's, that's wrestler paranoia. Is it not? I mean, wrestling breeds paranoia and this has got to be just amongst the boys. They're paranoid. Oh, here's why they're doing it. They're doing it to fuck. I mean, that's, oh, of course, that's it. Of yeah. course, that's it. But, and here's, here's where I get animated and I'm going to try this time because I knew this, I knew it was, <laughs> I knew this is going to be a tough show for me because, you know, there's a lot of things to a report on and it's all negative. It's, I, I figured I'd be hearing Dave's name a lot. I'm, I'm grateful that I'm hearing a different name for a change. You're welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But what frustrated me much, much more so then, but even now I still get irritated, is that 
paranoia and that kind of, you know, the boys, the wrestlers who are, you know, in that state of mind, you know, then talk to the Wade Kellers and the Dave Meltzers of the world or whoever they talk to. And now it's re being reported as fact. And that does have, did have, and I think still does in some cases, have a really adverse impact on the business. You know, when people say, oh, you know, I really respect the business, you know, I'm reporting on it because I respect it and I want it to be better. Bullshit. Half the stuff that is being reported directly or indirectly has an adverse impact on the business. Because not only do wrestling fans, and it's a small percentage, we all know that. We all, well, I, no, I don't know what the percentage is, but we've always, I've always assumed that maybe 10% of the wrestling viewing audience is aware of kind of the peripheral reporting or writing. It's not reporting, it's writing for the most part that goes on, you know, in the wrestling dirt sheet world. Now it's the online world, obviously, in social media. Maybe, to, maybe it's more now because of social media. So you, I never really believed that the audience, you know, was the general audience was impacted dramatically by it. But here's who was impacted executives that end up reading these trades because they don't really have any first-hand knowledge. They don't really want any first-hand knowledge. They don't really want to spend the time to really understand the business. So they rely on things like dirt sheets to give them a sense of what's going on within this world they really know nothing about. So when you start polluting the minds of executives who either directly or indirectly have a pretty significant influence on your business, it tends to get you hot. At least it did me. And not only do you have executives that could have influence over how your business is run, as we certainly were experiencing at this point in time. I had executives I didn't even know of that were having a tremendous amount of influence over my business. And they were being affected by what they read in the dirt sheets. Advertisers would often find these dirt sheets. I can't tell you how many times I've gone into uh, meetings with network executives outside of Turner Broadcasting and have the subject of something that was reported in a dirt sheet come up in a conversation. So all even though you know the, the, these, I'm not, not going to name names. I'm going to try not to name names. So if you don't bring them up, I won't either. But these people who profess to have such respect for the business and so much knowledge about the business have no idea how much damage they're capable of doing to the business they profess they love. And it never ceased to amaze me. And again, when I was in the thick of it, not some, I don't think about it anymore unless you ask me about it or, or you know, we're talking about it during a live show. And look, we do that for fun and entertainment as much as anything else. It is for me now. I, I look at it that way. But back then, it was my livelihood. It was life or death. It was, you know, we were fighting for our lives, literally the life of WCW at this time. And that kind of reporting had just, you know, I just want, I don't want to go off on a tangent here because I want people to understand why I get so agitated even now, 20 some odd years later, because it really was a challenge that, that had a big impact. And I, I find it ironic that people who claim to have such love and respect for the business were the ones who just, you know, to fill up 10,000 words in their dirt sheet, you know, reported crap as fact. Uh, I, I feel like we should at least mention that one of the suggestions was that the announcing and structure of the show needed to be overhauled. There are a few different versions of announcing that we got in WCW. 
but one of the constants, he wasn't there at the very beginning, but one of the constants was Tony Schiavone. How did, did you ever consider replacing Tony? No, no, Tony. Look, when I, when I went to work for WCW in 1992, I think it was 91 or 92, I reported to Tony. Tony was my direct report and Tony reported to Jim Ross. I always respected Tony's work ethic. Number one, he worked like a dog and he never sold it, meaning he never complained. He never, Tony never got political. He stayed out of the political fray as best he could. I mean, he did report to Jim Ross and, you know, I know we're all friends now and we all look back at things differently now than we felt about them at the time. But there was a lot of politics going on and Jim was right there in the middle of it all. And it made it hard on Tony. Tony oftentimes got stuck between Jim and Dusty Rhodes, who did not get along, by the way. You know, and I'm sure they did at some point. And they probably didn't for a while, and maybe they did again later on. But when I was there, especially when I first got there, you could cut the tension with a chainsaw between Dusty Rhodes and and Jim Ross. And like I said, I was you know I was a backup to a backup to a backup announcer, so it was easy for me to stay out of the fray and you know keep my head down and not get you know hit with any of the shit that was hitting the fan on a regular basis politically. But it was obvious to me when I first got there. How, how thick the political tension was. But Tony never got involved in it. And I respected Tony because of that. So between his work ethic and the way he handled himself inside of the office and his, jo- and his job and his responsibilities, and the fact that he was just a damn good play-by-play guy. You know, I, I don't know how anybody could have been better than Tony, given you can only be as good as the product you're calling. If the product you're calling, I don't care if it's baseball, football, or I watch some horseshit MLS soccer yesterday, uh, Los Angeles versus New York. And I was really trying to get into the game. And, you know, you see these players, I've, I've been corrected. They're not called flops, but they're called dives in soccer. And it just made the game just, it totally took me out of it. And if you're calling that, if you're a, a play-by-play guy or play-by-play color team calling that, well, I'm going to reference it as action, but bad acting would be better. Um, you can only be as good as the product you're calling. If Tony right now, you know, I know he does a lot of baseball. You, you can, he can only be as good as, as the product he's calling. And that was the case then. So no, Tony was never on my list. Now, you know, we, no, there was a time or two that I suggested he drop a few pounds because I think when things got tense for him and, and a lot of us, you know, Tony kind of blew up a little bit and it, it, Look, it's it's called television. You know, the vision is kind of a big part of that. And appearance is, you know, we're going to talk about that. Not Tony, but we're going to talk about, you know, some of that here later on in this episode in, in particular. But, you know, you've got to have a look. You've It's just got to look professional. You know, and I, I, I'm actually, I thought about this all morning. God, should I actually quote Jimmy Hart? I don't think I've ever quoted Jimmy Hart in my entire life. Nothing against Jimmy. I love Jimmy. Had some fun hanging out with him in Liverpool a couple weeks ago. But Jimmy Hart probably to this day says Dick Clark, back when when Jimmy was, you know, with a band called the Gentries and they had their they had a big hit called Keep on Dancing back in the 60s, I think. Evidently, Dick Clark came up to Jimmy Hart and said, you know, if you're going to dress like the audience, 
that's where you're going to end up. Meaning, if you want to be a star, dress like a star. If you want to dress like the audience that pays 20 bucks to come and watch a show, then that's where you're going to end up. You're going to be on, you're going to end up in the audience. You'll never be a star. And, and Jimmy used to quote that to me all the time because Jimmy always used to complain about ring attire. He used to drive me nuts because I, I didn't, I, I had other things that I was putting, I was trying to put emphasis on. And to me, that seemed at the time to be such a small thing that it just wasn't, you know, on my, list of 10 things that I wanted to improve. It was number 12 or 14. Right. But Jimmy was just like always in my ear about it. And, you know, the look and the feel of a show is important. And I might've, you know, suggested Tony drop a couple pounds at one point. I'm sure everybody's made a much bigger deal out of it than it really was. But to answer your question succinctly, no, it's never going to replace Tony. Who would you replace him with? There was, you know, Lee Marshall, you know, had a great voice. He had an amazing voice. For those people that don't know who Lee Marshall was, he's, he's since passed away. Lee Marshall was, and I think he still is, the voice of Tony the Tiger. Right. That was Lee Marshall. And I think when we hear those commercials today, it's still Lee Marshall. Now, Lee passed away about five or six years ago, but his voice lives on in Tony the Tiger. And I worked with Lee Marshall in EAWA. Quite a bit uh, as play-by-play in color. He, he was great, but he didn't know the product as well. He, you know, he would he would he didn't live in in Atlanta, so he couldn't be there full time. I wasn't going to move him to Atlanta. Um, so he, you know, Lee did a lot of backstage stuff. So other than Lee Marshall, there was nobody else to replace him with. You can't put an ad in the paper or anywhere else and and find somebody with you know ten or fifteen years of wrestling play-by-play experience. Let's talk about another criticism that, um, you rode the top stars too long and used them to get great buy rates, but didn't know when to start building up the middle card and instead just use the, the top of the card, to just decimate the middle of the card. So when it was time for this new crop of stars, we weren't really ready. Uh, they had been buried for so long that now the the audience couldn't perceive them as top guys. And this is a criticism that we would hear a lot in the newsletters for guys like Chris Jericho or Eddie Guerrero, or Chris Benoit. They're all going to go on to be main eventers and world champions, but instead maybe we're hanging on to guys like Hogan and Savage well past their expiration date. Obviously after McMahon had given up on them, you saw, you thought they had life. You were right. Uh, and they did huge numbers. But, and even you dusted off Roddy Piper and got some hot buy rates, but now in 99, you're extending his contract. And I think most people would say, well, maybe it would have been time to let that one slide and let's push some underneath talent. What do you make of that criticism? It's valid. I mean, there's, there's, there's no dancing around it. Um, I can try to explain it. I don't want to sound like I'm justifying it. All I can do is from the position I'm in now, and again, the way I look back and analyze these things, um, you know, the Hogan's, the Savages, the Pipers, the Flares, um, the the people who were at the top and stayed at the top, 96, 97, 98, were driving massive numbers. Every week, you know, when we open up a show, we talk about revenue year to date you know, year over year and quarter over quarter and things like that. So 
we hit a brick wall. It wasn't, this wasn't a gradual, you know, kind of slide, if you will, in, into the abyss ratings wise or buy rate wise. This was, this flipped from a television, television point of view, almost overnight. Now, it wasn't overnight. It was over a period of about six or eight months really is when things started really falling apart. But that was due to a couple different things. Keep in mind, over in the WWF, they were turning up the gas on the Attitude Era. Let's talk about some of the things that were going on over there, like Mae Young giving birth to a hand and Sable running around with her tits hanging out. And, you know, I mean, there was, we all know, I'm not going to sit here and beat it all up. We all know. what, And what that really was, was an attempt and a very, very successful one at taking the 18 to 34-year-old, or 18 to 49, really, demo that that allowed WCW to dominate the WWF from really 90, 95, 96, 97, 98. The reason we did is because we created a new audience that had been underserved by the WWF, and WCW had never really found a way to tap into. We found that audience. We tapped into that 18 to 49 year old demo that maybe had used to watch wrestling, but quit watching it because it was just too kiddy, too childish over in the WWF. And it was just too much same old, same old in WCW. So they just faded away. Well, when Nitro came along and the head to head competition came along and all the buzz that came with that and the NWO came along and all the buzz that came along with that, all of a sudden that 18 to 49 year old male demo, you know, came back to us or, or discovered us in some cases or what was over in WWF left WWF and came to WCW because of what we were doing. That gave us that three or four years, three years or whatever it was, two and a half, three years. Of, of ability to compete as well as we did. Now, now here we are in May of 1999, and you know I, things got a little risque on this pay-per-view because Turner Broadcasting didn't have much to say about that, really. But on Nitro, we're now being forced. We didn't choose it. We were being forced, thanks to a guy by the name of Steve Hire, two guys, Steve Hire and Joe Yuba, to change our direction and try to appeal to a kid's audience. So that 18 to 49-year-old demo that we had cultivated over the course of three years that led to us being as successful as we were, we were now boring them while the WWF at the time was gassing up the attitude error. They had completely abandoned their previous model of targeting you know, kids and teens and preteens because that's where their licensing and merchandising was, and it made all kinds of great sense, and advertising. They, they had abandoned that because they were getting their asses kicked in the process, looked at what we were doing, and said, hmm, we can do that, and we can do it bigger and better. And they did. So there was a massive seismic audience shift as a result of that, combined with a number of other things. Does that make sense? Yes. Did I even answer your question? I'm not even sure what the question was anymore. Thank you. Well, it, here's my point. I think that sometimes when the guys were doing so well and you're popping numbers left and right, that it almost becomes like a crutch or a seatbelt. Like, oh, well, if Hogan's on it or if Savage is on it or if Piper's on it, it'll do well. But uh, maybe in time, uh, let's talk about uh, the power plant briefly. 
Hey, God, uh, I, before we do that, I hate to interrupt you, brother, but I want to go back because I don't, I don't feel like I answered the question as well as I should have. The answer is yes. All the things that I just explained um, were happening. My point should have been that the the situation turned around rather abruptly, and as a result of turning around as abruptly as it did, it's obvious that I wasn't planning ahead. I I did not think about what are we going to do a year from now or two years from now or three years from now. There was no long-term planning on my part creatively. And I'm, I'm not talking about storylines now, obviously, but I'm talking about, you know, elevating that mid-card talent that, that you referred to, the Jerichos and, and, and the Benoit's and so forth. Um, I didn't do that. And I should have. That was my long-winded way of trying to accept responsibility. Um, I didn't do it for a couple of reasons, but the bottom line is I didn't do it. And those reasons weren't good reasons, by the way. I should have. I'm not sure it would have made any difference in the end. In fact, I know it wouldn't have made any difference in the end. But it was a fact that I relied too too long, um, or exclusively, I should say, on the Ric Flairs, the Hulk Hogan's, the Randy Savages, the Rowdy Pipers, the Stings, the Lex Lugers. Um, and I wasn't planning for the eventual phase out of some of that talent. You know, I wouldn't have, you know, when Roddy's Piper came up, Roddy Piper's contract came up, as you put it, I would have never said, okay, Roddy, I think, you know, your time's up, we're done. But I should have used him more judiciously and used him to help others get over as, as opposed to the mistake I made, which was relying on him because it had always worked in the past. Let's talk about the power plant here. You know, obviously WWE these days has NXT and they're trying to develop professional wrestlers from scratch. They're taking athletes from other sports and, and then teaching them the wrestling business. And that was sort of the original idea with power plant where you guys were you know, charging fans for an open tryout. Uh, very few would make it, but some who did would go on to become stars. And then you would use this as a way to sort of groom some other people you saw potentially and two of those being Goldberg and the giant. We know the giant is going to go on to be world champion. And obviously Goldberg is going to go on to be someone who's synonymous with the success and height of WCW. Did, when did you start to see the power plant differently? I mean, were you once high on it and then sort of got down on it because you felt like you needed a quick fix or what carry me through Eric Bischoff's philosophy and hope and vision for what the power plant was and whether or not it changed. Well, I, you know, the, the power plant wasn't my idea. I, I didn't start that. I think that not sure when it started really, it existed before I got into management, um, to one degree or another. I think Ole Anderson was the one that really, even before, I think before I was made executive producer, because back then, before I was made executive producer or vice president, uh, Oli and I were actually pretty good friends. And we didn't hang out after work or anything like that, but we had a really, really good working relationship and spoke often about Oli's approach to what we needed to do and, and to, to, to grow WCW and things like that. And Oli was primarily fixated on talent uh, and you know, it, it, the problem that existed back then probably still exists to a certain degree today. Now, WWE's done a good job. Let me identify the problem. The problem is you can teach somebody all day long in a, in a classroom environment, in a gym, you know, in a training center. But you can't expect them to go from that environment 
no matter how sophisticated it may be and how great the training may be, and put them on television and expect them to perform to the level you need them to perform. Because until you understand or get comfortable or learn, really, how to work an audience and how to react to a live audience, you've only got about a third of the equation. You may have all the technical skill in the world, but if you're not used to going out and performing in front of a live audience, you're only about a third of the way there. The, the, the remaining two thirds is what makes the difference between somebody becoming a legitimate star and somebody just being a very good technical wrestler. And Ole saw the power plant as a way to achieve the first 33% of the equation, meaning give people the technical skill. But we often talked about how do you, how, how do you get them out there in, in front of a live crowd, whether it's 50 people or 200 people or 2000 people and really take it, to the finish line in terms of their training. And the power plant was Ole's attempt to at least have some kind of an, and I'm going to give credit to Ole because I'm pretty sure that's where it really came from. Um, it was Ole's attempt to do the best he could at, you know, getting talent ready for that next step. Now, in our case with WCW, that next step, we didn't have a next or NXT, obviously. Um, but, you know, it was house shows, dark matches on TV, that type of thing. That was the best that we could do. I always liked the power plant. I never looked at it as a revenue stream once I became president. The idea of charging people wasn't because we were trying to make money on it. It was to make sure that the people that came in to try out were really committed. You know, you give something away for free, it's kind of, you're diminishing your own value at that point. And we would often charge people again, you know, maybe offset some of the cost of it, but not much. You know, it's not like we're running, you know, 2,000 people a month through the power plant and collecting $100 each from them. You know, so it wasn't it wasn't going to pay for itself. It was never designed to do that. It was designed to make sure that the people that did come through the doors were really, really committed to do it. Let's talk a little bit about, um, well, just everyone's unhappy. And, and it was suggested by a lot of the boys and in the newsletters that Eric Bischoff had lost his Midas touch. Maybe he was burnt out. Maybe he needed a break, but he needed to step aside. And obviously you've admitted that you're veering towards burnout. Was there ever a time when you felt like you needed to take your hands off the wheel and just go to the house for a few months? No, well, it wasn't an option, you know, and again, you, you, you would have had to live, you know, in that office and live under the environment and the conditions that we were operating under to really understand it. But it, it really was, it, it was a day-to-day -day battle for our lives. There were people inside of Time Warner that were picking our bones, that were pushing us not towards the cliff, but trying to nudge us off of it at, at every possible opportunity. I'm not going to keep beating it to death, but whether it was budgets whether it was um, support, promotional support, whether it was interference in, in the way that we knew how to operate our business, or at least with respect to television, create decent television. Um, they took every opportunity to keep nudging us off the cliff. And it, it really was like, you know, wake up every morning, have breakfast, and show up at the office for another street fight. So, you know, just throwing in the towel and saying, you know what, you know, pulling a Vince Russo, you know, that's what Vince Russo was famous for. About every 60 days, 90 days, he'd feel too much pressure and he'd go home. You know, th th that option didn't exist for me, uh, not voluntarily. If I would have pulled it once, it I would have gone home permanently. 
Um, so no, the, the idea there was, you know, we've talked about it a couple of times back in July of 98 or August of 98, when I, when it first became obvious to me, um, or at least a hint of it, that things were going to rapidly change for me. There was a period of time when I considered just resigning, not going home to take a break and recharge my batteries, but I was just going to resign. Um, I talked myself out of it because of my loyalty to Ted Turner and, and to WCW. Um, I talked myself out of it. By this time in May of 1999, I, I was burnt out. You know, I, I, not not on the wrestling side of things. You know, I was burnt out on the business side of things. I was burnt out from fighting the daily fights and the daily grind, emotionally and tactically and you know strategically and financially, the fight that I was in with my own company to, to try to survive. So it, it was true. You know, those who observed me. Um, and who observed that I had lost my Midas touch. Yeah, it was true. Um, that I was burnt out overall and probably needed to hand over the reins. Probably true. I wish there was somebody I could have handed them off to, you know, Kevin Nash stepped up creatively to try to help towards the end, but you know, there was nobody, nobody internally that I had any confidence in on the business side of things that was capable of doing it. Um, so I, you know, I was kind of stuck doing the best I could do. What about Goldberg? Let's talk about Goldberg. It's written in the newsletters that he's unhappy. He's trying to renegotiate. He's not happy with this creative. He wants more money. And allegedly he even goes on QVC when you guys were selling merchandise there on TV. This is a couple of weeks before Slambury. And the host asks what he's doing in the future. And he says something like, I really don't know because they don't tell me anything. And when the host who's clearly a fan says, Hey, why didn't Nash save you on Monday? And then it was never referred to again. He said, well, things often change from Thursday to Monday and they don't really have a plan. Does that make it back to your office? Because it feels like what the fuck you're the top guy. We're paying you a boatload of cash. Where's this coming from? Yeah, Bill. <sighs> Bill was a very, he was a very miserable guy. And, and, and I'm going to be careful how I say this. Cause and, and, I mean, Bill and I are friends. I'm not worried about saying anything that would offend him. I think Bill would probably admit, you know, he's a different person today than he was back then. But again, <clears throat> keep in mind, Bill broke into the business late in life. He had about six months worth of training, and all of a sudden he's he's at the top and and being put in situations that he was insecure in. He was surrounded by a bunch of people that were constantly jacking him around and playing with him and 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 stirring him up and firing him up because it was easy to do. He's a very emotional guy. He wore his emotions on his sleeve, so it was pretty easy to to mess with him. Uh, and a lot of people did. And he, you know, he didn't have enough when I say confidence, Bill had all the confidence in the world in himself. <clears throat> physically in a room full of guys. And you know, I'm not talking about physical confidence, but when it came to what was right in a wrestling match and the psychology behind it, you know, he had different people telling him different things and people that he respected. And some of that guidance was self-serving and, and some of it was helpful and some of it wasn't. And add to that, Bill didn't have the kind of repertoire and experience that would allow him to go out and do a lot of the things that, you know, I would have liked him to be able to do and he would have liked to have been able to do. He was somewhat limited 
uh, in terms of what he was capable of. You weren't going to give Bill Goldberg, you know, a 30 minute match with, you know, a dozen false finishes. Number one, it wouldn't have made sense for his character, but you know what I'm saying? He didn't have that depth of experience. As a result of that, he relied on a lot of people. And unfortunately, some of those people were pushing him and pulling him in directions that was self-serving for them, not for Bill. So as a result, Bill was miserable. He was, and he was vocal. And yeah, we were arguing over money. Some of the worst times of my life were, you know, negotiating with Bill Goldberg as we had built him up to be this huge star. And then he turned around to be, you know, absolutely, you know, horrible to work with when it came to negotiating. You know, immediately tapped into Hulk Hogan's attorney, Henry Holmes. You know, Barry Bloom was in his head, which, you know, I'm not even going to talk about that anymore. Um, there were there were a whole lot of reasons why you know that ended up being bad, and Bill had no qualms about going out and letting his feelings known publicly. So yeah, it got back to me, and and it was very very frustrating. It had to be frustrating dealing with guys like Juventud Guerrero too. We should mention that he's arrested on Thursday, April 29th in State College, PA. Uh, Jerry Flynn is too, but we'll start with Juventud. There's a thunder that evening. So that's the reason they're here in state college. And, uh, Hoovy juice is going to lead the police on a high speed chase after 2 AM. He's going to run several stop signs and ignore the police sirens. And according to the police, he even does a 180 degree turn at one point, trying to flee the police eventually realizes he's not going to make it. So he stops his car and flees on foot. They have to eventually chase him at gunpoint and arrest him. His blood alcohol level was 2.0, which is more than twice the legal limit. And Jerry Flynn is pulled over at 2.11. So around the same time, and this is after he left the parking lot and struck a curb across the street. Normally when you're talking about Jerry Lynn striking things, it's with his hands or feet, but this time it's with his car. He fails a field sobriety test. uh, And then later does a blood test at the hospital and showed a 0.19 alcohol blood level. Uh, he's released on $5,000 bail and uh, Hoovy is released on $10,000 bail. Woo. When you hear about guys fleeing from the police and getting arrested at gunpoint, uh, something's a mess, huh? Uh, you know, Hoovy's and, and before I say what I'm about to say, my thoughts go out to, to Hoovy. He, unfortunately, Silver King passed away. Um, as, as people are hearing this, um, I think it was Saturday, Friday or Saturday. I can't remember the date last week. And I believe it was in a match over in the UK with Hoobitude Guerrero. And that just had to be devastating for Hoobitude. That being said, Hoobitude had a history of doing a lot of stupid shit like that. And it, yeah, it was, it's just one more thing. You know what I mean? It, it's funny when I, I, cause I forgot all about that until you just read that to me and, and it was just like it, it was part of that daily grind when you show up, you know, you eat breakfast, you drive to work, you show up and you get into a new street fight every single day uh, for, for 12 or 14 hours each day. And this is just another kick in the side of the head that you didn't see coming um, that you had to deal with. And it was yeah, stupid on their part, Jerry's and Huey's, uh dangerous, clearly, um, and and very frustrating for us, added to a lot of the internal pressures we were feeling from AOL Time Warner, just made those people who wanted to unplug WCW because they really didn't want it in the in the new AOL Time Warner portfolio, it just gave them more ammunition. 
It gave them more to work with. It, it helped them justify their position. So, yeah, it was unfortunate all the way around. You mentioned it, uh, so we might as well talk about it. Got any Silver King memories you can share with us? Not really. You know, nothing that stands out. The only thing I remember, you know, and I, I, I posted something on Twitter yesterday. It must have happened the night before, but he was always a because I didn't I didn't spend a lot of time with, with the guys out of Mexico. You know, a lot of them didn't speak English, and I certainly didn't speak any Spanish. And they kind of kept to themselves to a degree. Um, so I never had a lot of one-on-one -on -one interactions. I mean, probably did more with Hoovy. Obviously, I did with Conan and Ray um, more so. But you know, Silver King was one of those guys that would come in. He would he was quiet. He, he, he was light when I did see him or did see him interacting with others. He was always very lighthearted, uh, seemed to be having a great time, was happy to be there. Uh, easy to work with. Never had one incident that I can recall anybody coming up and saying anything about, you know, Silver King being difficult to work with or showing up late or not wanting to do a finish or any of the typical kind of things that you would hear backstage. He was just, he always seemed to be a very pleasant, happy guy who was who was grateful for the opportunity to be where he was that's my impression of him when i when i was thinking back about him yesterday that's that's what i just kept going back to you know the images i have of him in my head were always laughing and smiling you know and i i wish i had more to to put him over with um he was obviously a great worker in the ring and as i said in my post you know and, and again kind of you know not to get sappy here but i'm really grateful to you for a lot of reasons but Doing this show over the last you know 12 months has really given me an opportunity to go back and look at this part of my history and look at it at, from a different perspective and not just from the guy that was in the middle of it all, you know, either high fiving myself or beating myself on a beating my head on a curb because of things that were going wrong. But I really get to go back and look at certain things now from a completely different point of view. And one of the things I was thinking about yesterday when I was thinking about Silver King and reading some of the things about him was people, you know, NWO, you know, people, that's what made everything turn around or Nitro is what made everything turn around or this or Bill Goldberg, blah, 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 blah. Everybody's got a, something that they can point to, either good or bad, that was the thing that really made all the difference. And I think oftentimes I forget sometimes until I watch a show like this or until I go back, you know, some of the stuff we did in 96, 97, 98, the influence that not only Silver King, but so many of the luchadors that came in from Mexico that Conan brought in, I think was one of the thing, one of the most important things that we did to help us turn the tide. And like I say a million times, it's never just one thing. It's always a combination of things, whether it's something good or something bad. But I think in the case of the luchadors and, and, and a lot of the guys that we brought in from, from New Japan, that added such an important element to Nitro and differentiated Nitro in such a significant way that it has to be, in my opinion, one of the top three, the luchadors now I'm talking about, and Silver King as a part of that, that group um, that helped WCW really achieve the success they did. So I just want to make that really clear. Thoughts and prayers to the Silver King family. It's pretty crazy to think that this guy passed away at, 51 years old. And, you know, I was familiar with his work more than 20 years ago. He's gone far, far too young in life. And I mean, there's nothing we can say here other than, uh, you know, how sad this is. 
let's uh let's switch gears here there's no easy way to transition uh there's a report and this has been talked about for a long time it's been whispered uh lots of lots of questions about it on twitter but we've never actually dug deep into it here's where it happened it's this era around the time of slambury 99 uh, arn anderson has a bit of a scuffle with disco inferno and allegedly disco was well liked by most of the locker room but the rap on him is that while he's constantly trying to make jokes and wisecracks, sometimes he takes it too far. And Wednesday, after arriving in Tampa, Florida on the WCW charter plane, more than a dozen wrestlers are on a shuttle, taking them to the car rental station. And Disco is making some comments, uh, to Hugh Morris, just trying to give him a hard time where I guess Hugh Morris's family was going to come watch the matches and Disco made some sort of joke about well your kids like me better anyway i'm even your kids know i'm a better wrestler than you something like that and arn who often trades these type of jabs with disco says hey cool it with the family talk and disco continues so arn slaps him across the face very hard and called it a rome georgia ass kicking and everyone is completely shocked and goes silent on the bus and then later uh, disco would tell his friends that he thought Arn was just joking back and had no idea that he was going to go over the edge. Uh, and eventually they patched things up and you know, the good natured relationship continues when you hear about Arn slapping the shit out of disco Inferno, or did you hear about it? I never even heard about it. Never even heard about it. This is the first time I've heard that story, uh, but it, you know, doesn't surprise me. I mean, it's funny. I ran into Arn. We had a great talk about a month ago. I can't remember. I can't even remember where we were, but um, we were at an event together somewhere on the East Coast, and it was the first time that Arn and I had really spoken in a long time. But you know, look, Arn back in the day during this period of time, Arn Arn was a very traditional kind of guy, meaning you could. Screw around, you could make jokes, you could pull ribs, you could do certain things, but you don't cross certain lines, and family was one of them. He believed that clearly as you relate this incident to me. I could see it happening, knowing Arn the way I did back then, and even to this day. Um, that was one of those things that Arn and a lot of guys are like that. You know, you don't you just leave the family out of it, you know. Do do whatever you want to do for a laugh and a rib and, you know, to try to occupy your time when you're on the road. But, you know, keep keep family out of it. It's kind of a sacred zone. And so I could see aren't doing it. But now this is the first time I heard about it. Let's get to Slambury. Um, that's what we call it. Another Sunday afternoon show at another time, changing the world title, the tag titles and the TV title on the same night. Plus having a match for control of the company on pay-per-view would make it for one hell of a show. But these days, nobody cares about the titles and the control issue has been turned into a bit of a farce. Uh, let's talk about how hot the tickets are though. There's a huge crowd here, 20,516 fans at the TWA dome. And what's odd about that is only 13,789 of them paid. So a ton of paper, but the gate's still massive, $494,795. And another $86,000 in merchandise. So even though it's a lot of paper, you hear those numbers and you think, well, damn, that's pretty good. Let me remind you that they held nitro in this building less than six months prior to this, not a pay-per-view, just a regular nitro. They had more than 30,000 paid 
They're at 13.7 paid here. And where they have a 494 gate now for a pay per view, they had more than 900,000 for that Nitro. So the tide has turned in a major, major way. Um, we're going to talk about the matches, but I do want to talk about uh, the Flair Piper control of the company thing because you had been involved in that. And we've talked about this briefly. Um, all the way back to the finger poke of doom night at the beginning of the show, beginning of the year in January, uh, you have your, your duties on television stripped. And now, you know, there's a new president of WCW. And of course that's Rick Flair and he's going to go to the mental ward and blah, blah, blah. We'll get into all that another time, but they had you doing various different jobs. You're a chauffeur, you're a bathroom attendant, whatever, but you're going to reinsert yourself here in this show as like the baby face. Uh, producer of the show or GM or whatever you want to call it. Why the decision to put yourself back on TV and this time, not as a heel, but as a baby face here fighting for the good of WCW. We're just trying something different. You know, there was, you, you could only sustain Rick, You could only sustain the, you know, Rick Flair as president or Roddy Piper as president of the company. That storyline doesn't have a lot of legs. It, it, it was intended to be a short run kind of a program, not a long-term year, two-year, three-year kind of a program. So I think we, we all determined that it had run out of gas in terms of Piper or Flair being the president of the company. It served its purpose, and we were trying something different. Again, go back and look at the ratings and where we were and the direction that things had been going in for three, four, five months by this point. Uh, we knew we had to try to something different, try something different. Obviously, I had a long history, uh, or at that point, I had a history on, on television in, in that type of a role. So we tried to make some sense out of it. Let's get to the show. Uh, we're going to start the match with uh, Raven and Perry Saturn winning a three-way match over Ray Mysterio Jr. and Billy Kidman, uh, as well as Dean Malenko and Chris Benoit, who at this point are horsemen. Uh, so Raven and Perry Saturn become your new WCW Tag Team Champions uh, this is three and a quarter stars. They get a lot of time, about 17 and a half minutes. Canyon is going to interfere. He's going to come out uh, with a sting mask on. Uh, of course, Arn Anderson is going to interfere and, and throw a spine buster on Saturn. So there's some interference. There's a lot of hot moves, but it does feel like a scramble because there's not the traditional tag in tag out about halfway through. We just throw the, the rules out the window and man, people are just all over the place. Uh, it's fun, but a little hard to follow at times. What'd you think? I hated it. Um, I, I, you know, the guys worked hard. There's no question about that, but the lack of structure, you know, and, and the lack of rules and just the kind of free for all, you know, you said it made it kind of hard to follow. It made no sense at all to me. That's the first thing. That's my second impression. My first impression when I watched it this morning was these guys, you know, going back to the Jimmy Hart, you know, if you're going to dress like the audience, you're going to end up being in the audience. Um, these guys all look like shit. And I look, I get it. You know, this was at a time when we were really, you know, the, the hip hop influence was was really kind of dominant in a lot of the things that we did and had been for a while. Um the the entire you know I mean, Raven looked like you know he didn't you know, obviously didn't have a hip hop look but you know it was that grunge kind of look that he'd had for so long it just looked horrible 
You know, it, it just it didn't feel professional. It didn't look like a character that you could aspire to to be. And I know people, you know, there were some people that liked Raven's character, and I get that. And Raven was a great worker and a really smart guy. And he had some great psychology. But in terms of just the overall appearance, he looked like the let me put it this way. If I pulled into a Jiffy Lube and I had somebody like that, you know, changing my oil, I'd keep my eye on all the valuables in my car. It just looked like, I don't know, it looked like a crack addict to me. Not suggesting he was, but he dressed like one. And then you had Hoovy come out there who had previously always been so colorful and, and you know, bright as a character and identifiable and full of energy. Comes out in a pair of overalls. Overalls! I, I mean, I get it. It was the whole... You know, it was part of the culture at the time, but it just looked like shit. Kidman, you know, his gimmick, same thing. Wife beater, a pair of cutoff jeans and boots. I just think collectively when you put those guys in the ring, it was such a dark, unprofessional feeling combined with the fact that there was no structure that allowed you to follow the match and engage emotionally and kind of get sucked into the drama of what was going on because it didn't make any sense. It's like going to a movie that had, you know, 15 different storylines happening in the first act. It's like, what the hell is this? What am I watching? Why am I even here? Go get me some popcorn. You know, I'm out of here. It, it is just, I didn't like it. And it is not a reflection on the talent. It's just a reflection on the way that match was booked and the way the guys were dressed. And that was probably more my fault than anybody else's. I let it happen. I do want to ask about Perry Saturn though, because it's written that Perry Saturn had been hospitalized twice in the, or three times in the prior two weeks coming into this show, because he's having a really, really severe problem with his back. He's even getting fluid injected in his L4 disc because it's almost completely drying out, uh, which is causing him extreme pain to the point is his buddies are carrying his bags through the airport and it's even painful to walk, but he's sucking it up. And, uh, he's resorting to painkillers, but he's powering through and you guys are taking him off the house shows and he's promising to continue to work the pay-per-views and nitros, but you put the fucking belts on him. Like, shouldn't you be going the other way with that? Probably should have. Yeah, absolutely. Bad choice. Well, it was a bad choice to book Conan and Stevie Ray next. And I guess we should mention before we cover this, I I like both of these guys in real life. They're cooler than the other side of the pillow. But you want to talk about two guys not clicking? Holy shit. This is one of the worst matches in the history of pay-per-view. If you're going to watch one match this week, I want to recommend you go watch Slamboree 99 to watch Conan and Stevie Ray fall over each other for six minutes and 10 seconds. Uh, the pay-per-view review in the newsletter would say, at least it was short. Uh, it got a quarter star, and I think that's being very generous. Both of these guys are capable of having good matches. We've seen them, uh, but this is not it. Is this one of the worst matches ever on WCW pay-per-view? No, that, 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 that would have to cover a lot of ground because there's been worse. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, I do agree with you. And I, I, you know, it's, it's funny. I, again, watching this back, it, it brought back a lot of memories and we'll talk about some of them throughout this, but I was kind of sitting there this morning with a cup of coffee, you know, finally after, almost killing myself, chasing my dog in a mountain lion. Um, kind of grateful. I'm still friends with Conan. I just did his podcast last week and Stevie and I talk on the phone, you know, once every couple of weeks and, and stay in touch. So 
really grateful that I'm still friends with these guys. But this was bad chemistry. And it just goes to show you, you know, I mean, you, you said both of these guys have had individually have had great matches. Both of them were great stars and great assets. But just because you have two people who were great stars or great assets doesn't necessarily mean that they're going to have chemistry and they're going to be the right fit. Their styles are just not going to work together. And I think this is a classic case exacerbated only by the colossal clusterfuck at the end with Horace and Vincent and Rey Mysterio. If you go back and take uh, Conrad's advice and check into this match, go to 36 minutes and 53 seconds for one of the worst. Again, interference. You hit it right on the head. First match, what do we have? Interference. Second match, what do we have? Not only interference, but the most clusterfucked, horrible, just disaster of, you know, an interference as a part of a match that one can imagine where Horace grabs or excuse me, Vincent grabs uh, Ray. Horace goes, you know, outside of the ring. Horace goes running at him to, to deliver a clothesline, but Ray's a little bit out of position. So they do like a redo. Of course, the camera stays on. It catches the whole thing. It's just a botched mess of a, of a finish. But and, and Ray coming in and you know, you getting in Stevie, you know, getting on top of Stevie and then falling backwards into a pinfall. It was just a horrible, horrible finish. And again exacerbated only by the, the the cluster outside of the ring involving Horace and, and Vincent and Ray. <laughs> yeah, not good. Uh, backstage, we're going to see DDP cut a deal with Bam Bam Bigelow. There's no payoff for that later. Uh, and then we see Rick Steiner do one with Buff Bagwell, and that actually would happen. Uh, let's get to Bigelow's match. He's going to pin Brian Nobbs in a false count anywhere hardcore match. I guess this is your standard hardcore match for WCW. They do the brawl through the fake uh, merchandise stand where fans can actually get to, uh, and no one is there to buy anything, <laughs> which never made sense to me. Uh, but it gets two stars. There's a couple table spots. Um, you know, I don't, I don't know how much we're going to do with cookie sheets, but that's what WCW used for hardcore matches and other people did too, but it just seems a little hokey, I guess. And, um, yeah, there is a spot where Bigelow is uh, by that merchandise stand and he's selling. Nobbs is going to go through the curtain where it's blocked off. They've blocked off the backstage area. And Nobbs is going to do that because he wants to get a ladder. But the camera gets a, a clear shot that, hey, we're blocking off a lot of seats here. Not the best look for WCW, but I enjoyed hardcore matches, but this is not near the top of my favorites. Uh, what did you think? It was horrible. And before we. And actually, I don't even want to talk about this match anymore. It, that's how horrible it was. <laughs> the, only, the only thing that I will say is at least they wore some colorful, uh, you know, ring attire. Like everything else up until this point looked like, you know, we, we hired a bunch of wrestlers from a homeless shelter. At least these guys had a colorful gimmick. Now, unfortunately, they were both wearing essentially kind of purple Basely crazy psychedelic looking shit with flames and you know in Bam Bam's case, but you put you put these guys together and it looked like something you would imagine in your mind if you've had too many mushrooms. It was just crazy looking, you know, from a ring attire point of view. But the match itself, I hated it. I hated those kinds of matches for a reason. This one gave me every reason to believe I was right. 
and going to you know the the backstage not the backstage but the the merchandise area and all that one of the other things that i noticed like the minute i hit play this morning to to review this um this is where knowing what i know and looking at things the way i look at things to me this is where i think more than any pay-per-view that you and i have covered together so far is where we see the real manifestation of the budget cuts in in the property night th this pay-per-view looked like shit from a production point of view and i mean across the boards the pyro looked like it was horrible it was just horrible you'd be better not to have any than to have that cheap shit the stage itself the entrance it, it, it was it was embarrassing. It's embarrassing me now to me now to look at it, you know, and it's 20 years removed. Now, I know why it was, but still my fingerprints are on it. And I have to you know accept that. But everything about this reeks of budget cuts and this from a production value point of view, everything. It was just horrible. And I think, you know, the, the, the merchandise area, the guys fighting through the travertine curtains, whatever the fuck it is, it just made it so obvious that we were still trying to do some of the things that had worked previously in the past when we had a budget to do them well. Um, but this looked just hideous. Let's go to the next match. We've got uh, Little Nate, of course, uh, Charles Robinson, our former referee, who's now the right hand companion for the nature boy, Ric Flair is going to be taking on Randy Savage's valet. And I guess real life girlfriend, gorgeous George. So we've got, uh, and, and, and even in the promos building this macho would challenge flair. And he would say, I bet my girl can beat your girl, uh, which is kind of funny, I guess. And, uh, the story here is macho man is going to be reinstated into WCW. If gorgeous George gets the win. So of course she wins. I know you're going to have fun, uh, bashing this, but I thought this was kind of funny, you know, for what it is. I don't think anybody thought this was going to be a competitive, hard hitting Japanese style match. Uh, it was all camp and Charles was doing his best. You guys went to the trouble of even having him uh, a custom ray uh, robe made that says little nature boy on the back. And he did his best to do the strut and did the full tan and had the trunks and boots and even did the up, down, upside down turnbuckle spot, which is kind of funny. Uh, and gorgeous George is as roll tide as roll tide gets here. I thought this was fun for what it was, but maybe a little long. What'd you think? See, just when you think, you know, me Conrad, you, I'm going to surprise you. I thought this match was fucking awesome. I loved it. I loved it. And I loved it because it was an absolute perfect balance of entertainment because it was funny as hell. And I cannot, I cannot possibly say enough great things about Charles Robinson and the work and the effort and the time and the detail he put in to pulling this off. I, I forgot about this. It, I mean, literally when it came up, I went, Oh my gosh, I forgot all about this morning when I'm watching. I'm going, oh my God, I forgot all about this. And even while we were producing it, I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have at the time. And maybe because there was so much other stuff going on and all the, all the, all those other excuses. But 
Go back and watch it. I, please, if you're listening to this, you owe it to yourself. If you have the WWE Network, get go back and watch this. If you don't have the WWE Network, it's worth it to get it just to watch this match because Charles is still out there refereeing in the WWE. But look at the little detail. Not only did, did Charles Robinson have the strut down and the look. If you notice, he cut his hair to look exactly like Rick, Rick Flair's haircut at that time he you know got the tan all those obviously but look at the way he taped his fingers up because rick flair had a very distinct way of taping his fingers that nobody else did charles picked up on that and taped his fingers up the exact same way you know the robe and the strut and all that is the obvious things right that he, that he knocked out of the park not minimizing them but they're obvious the less obvious and i think the more difficult things that he did to really capture Ric Flair's character is, yeah, the way he bumped the upside down flip-flop over the top turnbuckle, whatever you call that in the corner. He did that great. He did the Ric Flair face flop perfectly. But the match itself was a great match. For I mean, not for what it was. I would say that match made a lot more sense and was more interesting to watch from a psychology point of view than the opening match that all, that had all that great talent in it. Because there was psychology in it. There was a beginning and a middle and an end. There was an arc to this match. And both he and George, gorgeous George, obviously put a tremendous amount of time with the help of Rick and Randy in pulling this off. I thought the action in the ring was some of the best. Yes, it was towards the campy side because of the nature of it. But if you just, you know, pretend you don't know who, Charles Robinson was or the role that he typically had in WCW and you didn't know gorgeous George and you just watch his match. It's probably better than 75% of the matches you'll see almost anywhere outside of WWE today. As far as a story and, and technically they didn't try to do things that they weren't capable of doing. You know, they had enough depth to their repertoire and the things that they could do that they, they used them judiciously throughout the, the body of the match, didn't overdo anything. But what I loved about this is typically when people that don't really have any wrestling experience try to get in there and have a match, whether it's celebrities or anybody else, is they end up trying to do things that they're not really capable of doing or they don't have enough confidence in themselves of doing whatever experience. These guys were really good at keeping the body of the match within their abilities to meet or exceed the audience's expectations. Gorgeous George did as well. And it started out when they're exchanging, you know, arm bars and twists and all that. And the way, the way Charles was selling, just look at, again, look at the little details because it's the little details that often make things great. It's not always the big things that are obvious. But if you go back and watch this thing, and I'm going to go back and watch it again probably this afternoon because I enjoyed it so much. But when, when Nate, little Nate is selling, look at the way he's shaking his head. I mean, he studied Ric Flair. He probably knows Ric Flair as well as Ric Flair does in terms of, you know, what Rick did in the ring at that point. It was just, I thought, flat out amazing. The story was great. The psychology was great. It was still entertaining as hell. It made me laugh. But I, I can't say enough good things about it. And again, not, again, a little thing. And this is just me. This is my 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 way of looking at things, but go to one hour, 26 minutes, 31 seconds. If you have, if you're fortunate enough to go back and watch this match, watch as Medusa comes around the far side of the ring and absolutely 
glass Asia who, who was, you know, out there with Little Nature and, and Ric Flair. She was the, the, I guess, eye candy, although she was a beast. I don't know. Not sure how that made any sense, but whatever. Asia was out there, you know, with Ric Flair on the floor and started interfering in the match. And Medusa comes around the corner of the ring and just nails her with a back leg round kick. And when I say nails her, it, her being Asia, watch, because you get a perfect shot of it. You know, the camera was absolutely the best possible position on the floor to catch Medusa coming all the way around. And then you see her loading up that kick. And when she makes contact with Asia's head, it's like her head moved about eight inches. I mean, she laid that kick in there and did a fantastic job. And the reason I'm, I'm so excited about that is because, again, it wasn't, you know, in the in the body of that match, it was, I guess, relatively insignificant, but it was so well executed that it made everything around that moment look more believable, as opposed to what we saw with Horace and Ray. <coughs> Excuse me. The Horace and, and Ray, you know, interference outside the ring actually made everything else that had happened previous to it look even worse and more ridiculous. Whereas this one little spot where Medusa kicks Asia in the back of the head outside of the ring because Asia's interfering was so legit that it made everything everything else around it look even more legit. So I, I, I'd give this match, you know, on a scale of one to ten for what it was, I'd give it a ten. I'd give it a ten plus. Yeah, everybody worked really hard at this. It's everything you look for in a match. You know, it's entertaining and. It just checked all the boxes. Let's talk about the, uh, the next match, which is, uh, one that everybody's talking about. Uh, Wade Keller would write on the way to this match that buff Bagwell and Scott Steiner have not been getting along in real life. And that Steiner's comments on air about buff being self-obsessed with his grooming habits are quote unquote shoot comments and behind the scenes, buff is taking credit for Scott getting over. And he's even allegedly gone to you to say that. He should have a bigger push because he's got one of the best three bodies in wrestling. And I can't believe this is true, but Wade Keller wrote, there was even talk of having him replace Steve McMichael in the four horsemen. And if you would have put buff Bagwell in the four horsemen, I would have murdered you. Uh, so chat me up. Uh, these guys, you, you would, you would have had to wait in line because I think <laughs> Arnie Anderson may have gotten to me first. <laughs> Um, even during the match, uh, in the match recap, Meltzer would write, there was legit heat between Bagwell and Steiner all week. And there were rumors, not that this would be a shoot, but that Bagwell would wind up with some lumps. Scott potatoed him several times during the match and Bagwell showed up with some major league bumps. The next time you guys got together for a show, uh, chat me up here. Uh, tell us about the heat between Scott Steiner and buff Bagwell here at slam yeah, Buff was a little bit like uh, Disco in, in in some respects. He just he never knew when to shut up or back off. He was just kind of relentless. And I, you know, I I don't disagree with Scott's perspective about him being self obsessed with his grooming habits. I mean, look, you know, look at him when you see him back on this show. You, you there's a backstage segment where he shows up, and I mean, it's just it's almost to the point of ridiculous. You know, 
I mean, he was, you know, metrosexual before anybody knew what that meant. Um, it just, yeah, he, and he still is, by the way. I ran into him uh, over WrestleMania weekend at the hotel. And although he looks significantly older, um, he's still, you know, <laughs> every hair is in place. And, you know, he's got his neckline trimmed into a weird shape. I mean, he's just he's just obsessed with it. And that, I guess that was his gimmick. He believed it would work for him. He did have a great physique. There's no question about that. Um, I don't think <clears throat> that in and of itself necessarily, you know, catapulted him to the top of the roster. But in his mind, it did. Uh, because he was obsessed with that as well. But I can understand. Scott, Scott Steiner, you know, he had a short fuse. He had a low tolerance for nonsense. And Bagwell, you know, was full of shit most of the time and didn't know when to stop. The match goes seven minutes and 11 seconds. Scott Steiner pins Buff Bagwell to retain the U.S. title. What do you think of the match? Scott's going to get the win with the Steiner recliner. Truth here, I, I fast forwarded through it. I just, <laughs> I, I and and that's not. I just knew what it was going to be. No, I let's, mean, let's I just leave it right there. Fast forwarded. Okay. That's enough. All right, I love it. Next up, Roddy Piper and Ric Flair. Roddy's going to get the win by DQ. Uh, Robinson's going to come out to ref, and they fire Johnny Boone. Um, of course that means he'll be back right away. Uh, not a great match, not a terrible match, uh, but two and a half stars. I guess we should mention that, uh, there's lots of interference here. Asia's interfering. Arn Anderson's involved. Uh, Flair's going to pull out an object and knock out Piper with it. And then you come out mostly to cheers and reverse the decision. And then Piper fires Flair and you guys are hugging. And, um, you know, I guess Piper's sort of forgiving you for everything that's happened before and actually thanks you. And this finish or the whole creative is something that would be written about in the newsletters as being something that Flair was not happy about. Allegedly he had been, and I know you're going to laugh at this promised a pay-per-view win, uh, in exchange for doing television jobs for sting Nash and DDP in succession. And when he didn't get it, he's talking pretty loudly here saying that he had been double crossed and he's openly talking about maybe wanting to go somewhere else. And Flair was told just before the match that they wanted to keep him as a heel and in the same role, but those plans were changed and Bischoff wanted to be portrayed again as the man running the company, but this time as a baby face with the idea being that Flair had won the match, making him president for life. Uh, well, that just simply didn't happen. Now we don't have to live by that stipulation anymore so now bischoff's going to run the show but flair's going to continue to think that he's the president doing the whole half nuts routine uh, flair is uh, uh, reportedly not happy with this creative decision what did you think of the match and what can you tell us about the rumor and innuendo my <clears throat> my view of the match watching it back is tainted dramatically by how much I miss Roddy Piper. And I don't mean on a, <clears throat> on a personal level. I don't want to suggest that he and I were, you know, best friends or anything like that. But I, I miss I miss Roddy and, and what he represented and what he brought to the table. Uh, it was an era, you know, and Rick, obviously, you know, part of that same era and, 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 you know, love Rick to death and 
we hang out quite a bit together when we're on the road at, at the same events and things like that. But Rick is still with us, thank God. But seeing Roddy just oh, just reminds me of of an era that I miss when it when it comes to sports entertainment or professional wrestling because he he like Arn Anderson and, and again I'll mention Ric Flair, Randy Savage. There's just there's certain guys that bring me back, I guess, to a time when maybe it's because the business. I related to it much differently when I was younger, and that it's kind of like when you, you when you're driving down a road, and you hear a song that reminds you of high school, you know, or a good time in your life, and it just kind of brings you back to that happy spot, I guess. When I when I watch a match like this with Ric Flair and Roddy Piper, it brings me back to that happy spot, and it probably taints the way I really should be looking at this match. I liked it. The only thing I noticed, and again, Jimmy, and this is like the Jimmy Hart theme show. I noticed first thing, I could just hear him, baby, 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 they're both wearing the same color tights. Baby, 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 you got to get them to change. Because if you look at this patch, not only do their tights look like they bought them at the same place at the same time, so do their knee pads. I mean, th- these guys look like, they look like the Bobsy twins out there uh, in terms of ring attire. But, you know, the match, I enjoyed it, you know, whatever, criticize me, make fun of me, I don't really care. Uh, I enjoyed it, but again, because I hearken back to a certain era. In terms of the drama backstage, you know, I don't even want to comment on what Ric Flair said or didn't say. Uh, He may have been upset about it. It wasn't a standout thing. It wouldn't have made sense. We never bartered. I, I don't care what anybody says. I'm not calling anybody a liar. People all remember things differently you know, than the next person. Um, So I'm not going to comment too much on it, but I can tell you this. I never bartered TV wins and pay-per-view wins. I just, just never, that never came up. Hey, I'll do two jobs on TV. If you give me a pay-per-view win. I mean, it's kind of asinine to think about things that way. Uh, It didn't happen, but you know, if somebody remembers it differently, so be it. Maybe I'm wrong. Next up is an interesting match uh, for a couple reasons. It's Goldberg and sting, which you would think would be the main event, but it's not. Uh, they're going to go to a no contest in eight minutes and 17 seconds. Before we talk about the match, I do want to talk about something that was written in the torch where it said that the way sting was wrapping white tape around his boots, which I always thought was kind of odd, had become a bit of an inside joke in the locker room. Apparently sting was telling people that his boots were old and falling apart, but others believe that there's a wolf pack symbol on the boots and he's just trying to cover those up and get a little more mileage out of them. This seems silly, but we got a lot of tweets about it. Do you know why sting was wrapping white tape around his boots? Do not have a fucking clue. Now I didn't imagine you would, but I knew if I didn't ask, I would have gotten 38 tweets. Why didn't you ask Eric about Sting's tape? So now we did. <laughs> I don't know where people. How do you know? I'm, I mean, I'm grateful, right? Because if people weren't this passionate about this level of detail and what was going on 20 years ago and why Sting was wrapping his boots with white tape, you and I may not be doing this show. Right. I mean, clearly, there's a lot of people that are very passionate about this stuff, and I and I love each and every one of you for it. I'm seriously, no kidding aside. I'm grateful. On the other hand, I I I, I just can't imagine that people are interested in that, but they are. 
So I, I wish I had a great answer. I wish I could tell you a really interesting story and something behind the scenes that would shed new light on this, you know, moment in time, but I don't have a fucking clue. Well, these guys apparently didn't have a fucking clue what finish they should do because it goes to a no contest, which, um, you can't be thrilled with on pay-per-view and the way they get to a no contest is sting hits two stinger splashes. And when he goes for a third, uh, Goldberg power slams him. And then that's it. That's it. That's a two hours, 17 minutes and eight seconds. It was cool as shit. And then, Brad, awesome. and then Bret Hart shows up and knocks out the referee, Mickey J and delivers a bunch of chair shots to Goldberg. And after Brett leaves, the Steiners come out and, um, yeah, there's a melee with sting and Goldberg, but I, I want to talk about the Bret Hart decision because this is fascinating to me. Uh, Bret Hart had recently quit on TV. You know, uh, he picks up the mic and says, I quit. Uh, he, he's coming back here. And it's written in the newsletter. He was literally called the Friday before this show and had to cancel previous plans to promote his movie at the Toronto film festival. And now he's going to do this run in and to make sure, I guess nobody remembers it. This is according to the newsletters. They had the Steiner brothers follow, uh, and they beat up Goldberg and sting after Brett left, which I don't really understand, but and, I, mean, I mean, the reason you don't understand it is because it doesn't make any goddamn sense. That's why, that's why you don't understand it. It's, it's nonsense that, so just, just get, bear with me just a minute. I'm, I'm not going to name any names. I'm not going to yell and I'm going to try not to swear, but just read that sentence to yourself and ask yourself when you're done. Could that possibly make any sense to anybody, even given the dysfunction and the chaos that, that, that existed, in, admittedly, in WCW at the time? Does any, can anybody convince themselves without alcohol or other illegal drugs that someone possibly thought, okay, we're going to have Brett come in. And by the way, at two hours, 17 minutes and 36 seconds, lays one of the most devastating head sh chair shots I've ever seen on somebody directly to the top of Goldberg's head. Is anybody going to think that by the signers showing up and putting the boost to sing that somehow we're going to forget that? Well, I mean, come on. That's, I, I think the point sick. is it does diminish the Bret Hart return. and It may diminish the return. That's a separate topic. But to try to pretend you know, by doing that, it, it's going to make everybody forget that Bret showed up and did it. Here's my question, oh. I guess. Uh, Bret's moving slowly here, and it's written – it's because he just had his groin and abdominal surgery. So he's not going to be able to wrestle again until July. And I guess they're doing this because Goldberg's going to take some time off because he needs surgery. But what happens here is Brett, and this is rare, actually injures Goldberg. And they think that he actually broke his ankle, but x-rays later on that evening would reveal there was no break. And he's even wheeled out on a golf cart in front of the boys. And he's acting like he's in a lot of pain and Brett is profusely apologizing. And he's very upset because he has a great reputation for never hurting anyone. And apparently he, his, his plan is to jab the chair into Goldberg's leg, but Goldberg is moving, lifts his leg. And while Brett is slamming the chair down and winds up hitting him with a lot more force. 
And Goldberg is saying that he was the one who moved and it wasn't Brett's fault. And, you know, he's trying to play modern day superhero and got a little too incident too into it. And now he's hurt. Uh, but the original plan was for Goldberg to challenge Brett on the tonight show on May the 12th. And that's when he was supposed to do the grandstand challenge for Steve Austin for a hundred thousand dollars, all this jazz. Uh, what do you remember about Bret Hart injuring Goldberg in this melee? Well, I do, you know, I obviously I wasn't in the ring, um, but it, going back and looking at it and listening to, to Bill's, you know, responses to it, it, it wasn't Brett's fault. I, I don't, from a technical point of view, and you may have heard me say this on the uh, dark side of wrestling series on, on vice. Uh, I, I don't think anybody from a technical perspective will ever surpass Bret Hart in, in terms of what, what he was able to do and how he executed in the ring. Technically, he's one of the best. Maybe there's ever been. He and Rick both are, are, are two, those two guys are, are neck and neck in, in that regard, in my opinion. And I'm not a wrestler, so people may disagree with me. But when it comes to Bret Hart, I don't think anybody can ever accuse – nobody ever should accuse Bret of you know, taking liberties or being sloppy or not looking out for his opponent because that's just not true. It doesn't mean accidents can't happen. And I think Bill did the right thing by you know, taking responsibility. It takes two in this dance. You know, you, you, you have to dance together. And if you start, if you get a little bit of out of step or get, you know, get off beat or out of rhythm, then accidents do happen. And I think that's what happened here. And I don't think there's anything more to it than that. Let's get to our main Brett, event. Brett, Brett did, Brett did feel horrible. He, he really did. And I, you know, it was just a bad situation. Unfortunately, there was no DDP repellent in WCW, so they hired Kevin Nash to come beat him here for the WCW World Heavyweight title. 16 minutes and 45 seconds. DDP is working very hard uh, to put on a good match here. Of course, there's going to be some interference. Uh, Randy Savage is going to interfere for a DQ at 13 minutes and one second. And then Bischoff is going to come out and order Savage to leave and then restart the match. And you're saying, I don't care what Ted Turner or Harvey Schiller are going to do to me, uh, or what the rules of the match were, the match is being restarted and page is going to try to use a chair, but Nash moves and hits the chair with the ropes and it bounces back into his face. Like Terry Funk used to do page comes back with a low blow, tries for another chair and, uh, he uses a, uh, a jackknife to get the win. No major post-match celebration, but the crowd goes bananas. Not the best match. I didn't really like the DQ and the start and stop, but I get they need to reestablish you as the babyface leader of the company. Uh, but Kevin Dash, who's the booker, is now the world champion, and of course that's going to get the internet talking in a big way, and probably some corners to the locker room as well. What'd you think of the match, and what'd you think of the decision for Kevin? to put the title on himself. <clears throat> I think it made sense. I think, you know, DDP had had his run. It had gone as far as we could probably take it at that point in time. Um, Kevin, look, Kevin put himself, he knowingly put himself in a position where he knew he was going to get a lot of heat because of the internet and dirt sheets and so forth and some of the boys. But he believed it was the right thing to do. And so did I, by the way. 
So, you know, hopefully that covers the, the you know, the, the dirt sheet drama and backstage drama. Um, as far as the match goes, I, I hated the finish. I think we, we so far, every one of these matches has had outside interference or a DQ. And I, there, there, there is probably forget about the finger poke of doom and ATM Eric and blah, 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 blah. If there's, if there is one thing that, that helped put us in the position that we were in at this period of time, it was the lack of creativity when it came to making matches interesting, especially on pay-per-views. And when your go-to is interference or DQs on every single match on a pay-per-view, you know you're in deep shit. And we were. That being said, the body of the match, not only did DDP work hard, and he did, as he always did, and probably still would today given the opportunity. But I think Kevin worked his ass off. Kevin looked, I thought Kevin looked, you know, Kevin was capable of having some great matches. Kevin was also capable of, you know, and he's a big guy who's had a lot of injuries. Even at this point, he had had a lot of injuries. So you, you weren't going to expect Kevin to go out there and have a, you know, Dean Malenko, Eddie Guerrero style match. You know, he was a big seven foot, nearly seven foot tall guy, you know, 300 some odd pounds with, with knee issues. So he did what he was capable of doing. But I think in this match in particular, go back, if you do go back and look at it and I encourage you to do it, I think it's some of Kevin's best work in WCW actually as a match. Now, not as a character and all that, but as a match, um, look at the way he's selling for DDP throughout the entire match. He just didn't sell once or twice. Sold his ass off to make that match work. And did it in a believable way. Sometimes when a guy as big as Kevin or others that are as big as Kevin try to sell, you know, subconsciously or consciously you're sitting at home going, uh-uh, <laughs> that wouldn't happen. And it kind of takes you out of the moment. But, you know, Paige was big enough compared to, to Kevin at the time to as long as Kevin was selling for him, it'd be believable. And I, 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 I got sucked into it, you know. In, in terms of the story in the match, because there was none of those, there weren't those moments within the body of match where I had to throw the bullshit flag because a bump looked so ridiculous or the selling seemed so artificial and, you know, poorly timed or whatever. So I, I thought the match was pretty great, excluding the finish. I thought the finish sucked. It is what it is. Uh, not the best pay-per-view loaded card, ton of talent, but for whatever reason, it does feel like there's some misses on here. It, it's just more of the story of WCW and their decline now from, you know, the heights of 97 and even 98, uh, 99 is just in a steady decline. And, and I don't know, four or five more months, Eric Bischoff is out of here too. And we are going to be out of here for today's episode, but we'll be back next week and we're doing something totally different. And we're very excited about this. We're going to sit down with the author of the nitro book, Mr. Guy Evans. We've been talking about this book for the better part of a year now. And we're going to sit down with him and pick his brain. And we're doing this next Monday, May the 20th, set your calendars. And we're going to do it in advance of our panel at Starcast. Uh, now at Starcast, of course, there will be a whole cast of characters who were uh, in the WCW front office and helping make decisions that shaped what we watched every Monday and Thursday. But next week we get to talk to the guy who talked to more than a hundred Turner executives. And I've got a list of questions a mile long. We'll see how much of that we can fit in next week. And I don't know who's more excited about this, Eric, me or you. Uh, 
I can only say, I don't know how excited you are, but I'm really looking forward to this. Really, really looking forward to it. I am too. We're going to be here next week, every Monday. Tell your friends about the greatness that is 83 weeks. We're still seeing a lot of interest in our collision in Korea episode. Uh, even if you don't think you're into the topic, you should definitely listen because I don't know when we'll talk about some of this stuff again. Who would have thought coming into this episode, we'd talk about Arn Anderson slapping Disco Inferno or Hoovy fleeing police. Wow. Uh, I can't wait to see what we cover next week when we break down the book Nitro from Guy Evans. We'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.